Well, I want to do a little bit of imagining together, and here's, here's how I want to do that. I want you to imagine that the year is 1984, and for some of you, you're thinking, that was my year. Not many of you, apparently. 1984, let's just say maybe two years in either direction of 1984, and wherever you go, someone is wearing headphones and a baggy sweatshirt. And the sweatshirt is no longer just a drab piece of your winter PE outfit stuffed into a duffel bag. Now, 1984 workout clothes are everyday attire. Does that sound really bizarre to anyone? The songs in the Billboard Top 40 are an overproduced parade of synthesizer and digital drums. And the mullet is the haircut for all your business and party ambitions. <laughs> if you had a permed mullet, a sweatshirt, and a Walkman, they basically made you class president and they just handed you the keys to a brand new Camaro. I mean, that you were it back then, right? Well, here's the thing, y'all. The mullet is back. So is the perm. And nobody cares if you think this is a bad idea. We're all going around in our workout clothes, right? So everything changes and everything stays the same, doesn't it? In the 80s, though, the Sony Walkman became the first truly portable personal music player that played not just the radio, it played your own music wherever and for however long your batteries would last, which was about six or seven minutes. The thing is, my grandparents had just bought me and my brother Jamie a boombox, or for, if you prefer, a jam box. And this was, you know, basically a big plastic, two-foot plastic rectangle with six-inch speakers and a cassette right in between. And you're supposed to hoist it up on your shoulder so that everyone could hear your music and be impressed, or so you hoped, and that they would gather around to dance, or so you dreamed, until inexplicably the deck might decide to eat your tape your latest tape, your run DMC tape, you fill in the blank, whatever that was. And then surgery was needed to not only extract the tape, but to gingerly just pull, the, you know, pull it out and then wind it back up with your pinky finger. Did any of you experience that? Millennials, you're thinking, what is he even talking about? We just pushed the button. We had to rescue our music back then, y'all. It was way more at stake. We had to rewind our music to listen to it again. The Walkman made the boombox, or the jam box, obsolete in about a month. They disappeared. The Walkman became your own musical world. And here's the thing. You could say, this was, this was a big deal. You could say that the personal audio device became both a cultural icon and an omen for what the 21st century would hold. It would change music forever by turning it inward, personal, my own. It became an MP3 player and has since merged with the personal phone, which is also a camera and a calculator and a calendar. And it's also a second cerebral cortex. It's also a tiny window into another world, any world, an escape hatch from the moment that we're in and the people we're with, if we prefer. The world as I want it, or I think I want it, is in my very own hand which is a metaphor for life in the 21st century, isn't it? It's hard for us to imagine another life without our phones and our devices, but most of us are kind of conflicted about it, aren't we? We are. There's a reason for that, because this is the era in which we've been baptized into our own selves, and we don't necessarily want it, but it's the way it is in many ways, and we know something is amiss. And even the pandemic has been more than interesting in this regard, 
as much as we actually depend on one another to see this pandemic through to its end, it's arguably turned us even more inward in some ways and made an already fragile sense of belonging a little more fragile. Do you feel it? Whereas we've been trying to do something for public health and for the common good, and rightly so, we've experienced a lot less common anything in a bodily sense, in a present sense. In many ways, being apart physically and in all the ways we've struggled to be a community, it has pulled down the shades on the connections that we once took for granted. And it's been a full year that we've been after this. We've been through it. And the fact is, what has happened and what is always happening to our bodies, whether good or bad, is always happening to our souls. That is biblical anthropology right there. That's why this season is so challenging. It's, it still forms us and we feel it. Contrary to this blatant lie of dualism, body and soul aren't two separable or separate manageable parts of us. The truth is we are a mysterious unity of body and soul. So this morning I want to tell you two really important and related things about the resurrection of the Son of God. About the meaning of Easter with Paul's words to the Colossians in view. And with us as bodies and souls living together in the world as it is. Dependent upon what Christ has done and the promise that he has made to make it full. And the first thing I want to say about this is because we don't have bodies, because we are bodies, Jesus redeemed humanity, came to humanity with a body, and he brought it through suffering and death and back to life in a body. Not as an idea, not as an ideology, but in the body. The mutilated corpse of Jesus, and that's what he was, was healed and raised to redeem us body and soul, not only from death, but from the despairing and deceived and commodified and corruptible lives that we live in these bodies. He took on a body to be a body for these bodies. He was betrayed. He was denied. He was abandoned by his friends. He was heartbroken. And the powers of politics and of religion and culture, under the sway of self-preserving evil, tore his body and tried to bury it like a piece of unwanted garbage. But they could not tear him away from his father. And they could not tear him away from those for whom he was raised. You and me. It turns out he was not treasonous trash like they treated him. He was a seed buried to give us new life as he sprung up from the ground by the power of the Spirit for your body and mine. Now death will not have the final word over our bodies, and it will certainly not have the final word over our souls. Our stories won't have the final word over our souls, the stories we've lived, even the most horrific ones that plow us so deeply into the ground they cannot keep us down forever. It's a great place to amen. Another chapter is already written for us. We just haven't lived it yet, but we're beginning to live in it a little bit by faith, body and soul. Jesus took on a body. He redeemed our bodies. But here's the second thing, and it has everything to do with this trajectory of life that we're on right here in our current era with the inward 
insulating and individualistic paths that we trod, even accidentally. The body of Jesus Christ was raised from suffering and death to redeem our bodies as new members of a new human community. This does indeed preserve our individuality. It does, but it grounds the gift of who we are as individuals in the reality of belonging with and to others in a larger story of meaning and purpose. And this is what's at stake. The story of the kingdom, what we call the gospel, is the story of a world being made new through a family born of God from the seeds that sprung up because of the seed who went into the ground and died that many more could be made the sons and daughters of God. Family. Humans are made for each other. We know this anyway. It's always been the case, but it's always been our problem, hasn't it? And because it's our problem, we must be remade. We're made for each other, but because it's such a problem for us, we must be remade for each other. This is what the resurrection makes possible. In his pensées, the philosopher Blaise Pascal, he wrote, Between us and heaven or hell is only life, which is the frailest thing in the world. Why is it frail? It's not frail merely because we will get sick and die or because disaster is a real thing, even though we try not to think about it. It's way more complex than that. Life is frail because we live in a world surrounded by other ensouled bodies and embodied souls. It's you and me making life that much harder. Like it or not, I am body and soul affected by you and you by me. We are related. We are connected. We are contingent. Think about it. It goes even deeper. It's even more complex. You got your body from other bodies. And whether we like it or not, much of what we struggle to explain about ourselves is the gift or curse of what happened to the bodies and souls from whom we came. We don't know how that works. Science can't tell us all of that. But this is actually not merely a Christian idea. It's an expanding consensus among psychologists, biologists, and the like that bodies carry stories and tendencies and buried trauma, and they carry generational realities that we can't fully understand. Now, we can change our behavior, though it's often hard, but we can't change our genetics. We can't change the stories lived even before we lived that affect ultimately, not just psychologically, but even physiologically who we are. We can manage the present, but we can't change the unpredictable nature of the future. Nor can we change the past or even know, as I said, how it has fully shaped us. And that is a significant vulnerability, isn't it? As a family systems theorist, uh, Edwin Friedman, who you may have heard me talk about, he puts it this way, the past is always present. If you're a counselor, you know that. If you've been to counseling, you know that. The past is always present. We can make choices in the present, but we can't always control how our bodies or our souls are going to handle the results of our choices or the results of the choices that other people make without our choosing. Those affect us. This is why life is frail and difficult. It's also why it can be incredibly blessed. Do you see the flip side of the effect The communal effect of of being affected and contingent and in community, it's an opportunity. And that's exactly what Jesus was raised from the dead to give us. 
a redeemed resurrection community. He's renewing our contingent and our affected bodies by calling them together into a fellowship that begins, first of all, in the humility of embracing him as the one true story of the world and the one way for us to be the best possible versions of ourselves and our lives. But it's also a community of honor, of dignity, of servanthood and generosity. Far from merely sitting cross-legged like a guru or shouting atop a hill in front of an eager crowd, as maybe you might imagine Jesus did, he spent the majority of his ministry among 12 people that he was teaching to live as a signpost for a new world, a new community of God's kingdom. Like it or not, Jesus started a community. And I know some of you are just, I mean, church is just beyond the pale for you. But Jesus started a church. When he was resurrected, he breathed life again into being together. That doesn't make it easy. And that doesn't always make it a blessing. But he started this community with 12 imperfect people. They were not exactly well suited to one another. Philip was a devout Jew. Matthew was a tax-collecting trader of Israel. They probably did not share bunk beds when they first started out. Jesus also started this community by inviting women to a more prominent role than they'd ever had elsewhere in society. And that was uncomfortable, y'all. He founded it not by leading an army into power as they might have wanted, but he called them to servanthood and to unity. He ground the movement in faith and in his promises that he would rise and that he would return. And they might not see all the returns for their sacrifice and their humility and their blessing of one another in their own lives, but they believe their own lives were hitched together inextricably to not only the life of God, but the life to come and everyone who would live in between them and the return of Christ. Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was present with his followers for 40 days after his resurrection. Did you know that? And they needed every single day, y'all. They needed every single day they had with him to thoroughly assimilate what this here and now, flesh and blood, body and soul reality and all the implications of the resurrection would mean for themselves. Resurrection, not only as a promise of life beyond death, but as a central reality in which or around which they were to live together. What this amounted to is not and never will be a perfect community. It'll be one that has needed to be redeemed and will need to be redeemed. It amounts to a community, and here's the thing. We know what our problem is. We should. We know. We understand sin. We know what it does to others. We know what's wrong with the world, and we know why an innocent man sent from God had to die. This is a community who know our story, or at least we should know it. The novelist William Faulkner was once asked what people should do if they read his novel, The Sound and the Fury. Has anybody read The Sound and the Fury? So they asked him, what do you do if you read it once or twice and you don't get it? Do you know what he told them to do? Read it again. Read it a third time. I'll be the first to admit that much of the church since Constantine in the 4th century, and through all the enticements of power and privilege in the West, we need to read our story again. 
We always need to read our story. We're trying to tell that story every Sunday. Do you know that? We need to read it again, and we need to read it again. And we find ourselves unable to get it. And sometimes, and I think in particular the church in America right now makes me think of this, this little parable. We're like a girl who went to the river to look for a hip, hippopotamus, but wasn't really sure what to look for. So she swam out into the river, and she stood on a large gray rock for a better view. And if she had known what to look for, she would have known that what she was standing on was what she was looking for all the time. And I think very often we as the church can stand up there not really knowing who we are and what we're, we're meant to be and forgetting that everything that the Lord has taught, that the Holy Spirit is trying to convict us of and we're standing on that very reality and we can't see it. We need to read the story again. And sometimes the hippo has to throw us off for us to realize what's going on. This is not a new problem, y'all. Christians are, and the church is just as capable as anyone else and any other institution of being lazy, self-interested, commodified, and corrupt. Well, we know what our problem is. The real problem is when we can't see it. Unfamiliar with who we are and why we are who we are. We too are bodies and souls living in the world as it really is. It's really hard to follow Jesus. We get lost in the world as it is. But because we believe in the resurrection and because we believe in the reasons for the resurrection, we're the one people and the one institution who are fundamentally accountable to return to the empty tomb and to the risen Lord and say, we know what's wrong, we know what was necessary, we know what God has done, and now we know who we are and who we need to be to each other. We have to read our story again. At our best, the church is, as Paul tells the Colossians in this reading, a community seeking the things that are above, who embrace a truth about ourselves and about others that's very mysterious, and it calls for humility. If you don't know, what's the first response that you, you, a wise person has? Humility, right? We don't fully know. The fullness awaits us. But if you've been raised with Christ, Paul says, you know what it is to have died. You know what it is to have been resurrected as something new. You just don't know fully who you are. And so we trust in the Lord. And we start living together. In our abbreviated reading today, we get a reminder of the characteristics of the new life that we're to put on as a community. Compassion, kindness, humility, Meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love. And it's no wonder that our world has a problem associating those things with the church. We are a community meant to contend for life together that puts love and all its expressions at the center of all of our efforts. It is hard. In verses 5 through 10, which are not in our reading today, Paul's reminded them what they have to do to die to, what they have to take off, and they've got to put away if the resurrection is actually their life. And he caps that part by completely reorienting their former personal and practical and corporate and cultural identities, saying this. He says, there is not Greek, there's not Jew, there's not circumcised and uncircumcised, there's not a barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. He knows their past is always present. He knows what can divide them. 
but he also knows what has the power to unite them. They need to read the story again. They need to live the story again. And if you wonder why we keep putting the cross right at the forefront of your imagination, it's because there's our story. And it's an empty cross. But it's our reality. Hannah Arendt was a 20th century agnostic political theorist, and she was a philosopher. She's probably one of the most influential modern thinkers that you may not have ever heard of. She said this, the remedy for unpredictability, for the chaotic uncertainty of the future, is contained in the faculty to make and keep promises. That's just a principle. God has promised to fully renew the world by means of the resurrection of the Son of God and his return. So we form a community built on that promise we, that, that God cannot break and will not break. And so in that, we make our own promises, and we break them. But we repent, and we try again, and we forgive, and we keep becoming this community that rely on something beyond ourselves and even our own ability to keep promises on the promise of God. And then out of that, we can become the best the better versions of ourselves, but it's always going to take humility, repentance, and forgiveness. And there's no reason in the world why the church can't do this on the regular to our culture. It's the promise of a community like this that is the remedy for not only the chaotic uncertainty of the future, as she says, but also the chaos of the present in the wake of the unexpected. Things like the Roman Colosseum in AD 121 or the COVID-19 pandemic in A.D. 2020, 2021, 2020, really. But here we are. And so our logistic challenges have been living in this time, this particular difficulty, this particular chaos and uncertainty. The challenges are logistic that remain, maybe at least for a few more weeks or months. But let me tell you this. That is the only thing, if we believe in the risen Lord, that should, that should ever separate us logistics who we are individually and as a community is made clear in the resurrection we are clearly designed for love you are clearly designed for compassion kindness humility meekness and a patient determination to bear with one another are we doing it if christ is alive this is who we are full stop and he has given us his Holy Spirit because the fact of the matter is we can never do it perfectly. We can never perform and we don't have to perform to earn anything. What we are called to do is to glory in the risen Christ. Hallelujah, he is risen. And then to see that glory at work in us as we continue to reckon with our past that's always present and our imperfections that are always coming to bear. And I know this, to be sure we're going to have to be a different church that is holding our culture's imagination than the one that's holding our culture's imagination hostage. We're going to have to be like the church who fought to abolish racial inequity, not the one that fostered it. We're going to have to be the same church that has historically challenged and subverted the politics of power, not the church that's in bed with them. We're going to have to be the same church who believe Christ's call to holiness is how the image of God, the beauty of God, is recovered in us and it's cultivated in our community and it's made visible to our world. Not the church who make excuses for sin and confuse therapy with repentance. 
We're going to have to be the same church who are not ashamed to proclaim Christ amid the pantheon of other gods and not the church who make Jesus an option and at that not one to be taken very seriously. Above all, we're going to have to be the church who waits and watches and prays together until Christ, who is our life, appears. The moment when, despite all the uncertainty, despite all the chaos of life, we will finally and fully appear with him. Until then, it's you and me. It's ride or die. I hope that can be true of you. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come to and through our lives. Cause your peace to rule in our hearts. Cause your word to dwell in us richly, as Paul prayed over the Colossians. Fill us with gratitude. Fill our hands again with your body, that we might be your body again, and that our bodies and our souls might belong to you and you to us. And we say, as good as it can be, and as good as we desire it to be, we still say, come quickly, Lord. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.